Before we begin the message this morning, I, I direct your attention to the first verse of our gospel reading on the back of your bulletin. Uh, j- just a couple of notes. Uh, verse 39, Luke writes, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. In those days is uh, really a term borrowed from the Old Testament. And it's the kind of phraseology that the prophets would use looking ahead to the messianic age, looking ahead to the age of fulfillment, the age of God's deliverance, which has now come. Luke just lifts this term from the prophets and uses it to describe the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. So in those days speaking prophetically now from the Old Testament, this is the fulfillment of what they saw. And then also, verse 43, I'll just direct your attention there quickly. Um, Elizabeth cries out, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now this is chapter one of Luke's gospel. And already in Luke one, this term Lord has been used eight times before now, and every time it refers to Yahweh, it refers to God, God of the Old Testament. And now it's on the lips of Elizabeth, and I think it's Luke's way of of introducing us to the idea. This will be built upon later throughout the gospel, but this is more than a man we're talking about. This is God in the flesh. We bow our heads and pray. Almighty God, you've promised that your word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, what's called the TED Talks. You can see them once in a while on television, or you can go on the internet and watch these. They are 18 minutes or less uh, on a wide variety of topics, and they're fascinating. Uh, I recently watched a TED Talk on how unborn children learn and what they are capable of doing before they're born. Uh, And first of all, they're learning in the womb. They're learning things like crazy. It's incredible. Uh, of course, they learn the sound of their mother's voice. Uh, and that voice, the voice of the mother, is much more distinct and clear than the other voices that they hear because the other voices have to travel through the mother to get to the child. And, and uh, some scientists suspect, we're not sure of this, but they suspect that the other voices are kind of heard like, like you'd hear Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, kind of wah-wah, wah-wah, wah-wah sort of that kind of a thing. But, but the mother's voice is very different. It's very clear. It just reverberates through the child. And so after the child's born, the child knows that voice, gravitates to that voice, and will not follow another voice. Researchers also found that when mothers read repeatedly uh, a section, it doesn't matter which section, from the cat in the hat before the child's born, then the child will recognize that passage later after birth. 
okay? And the way we know this is uh, when children are bored, well, I mean, children, you know, babies suck a lot, right? Um, and uh, when they're bored, they suck real fast. When you, when you get their attention, they stop sucking, okay? And so when the cat, when this familiar section of the cat in the hat is read outside the womb, the little guy stops sucking, right? He recognizes the passage, in other words. From birth, babies cry in the accent of their mother's native language. For example, French babies cry on a rising note German babies cry on a falling note, imitating the melodic contours of their mother's language. And by seven months gestation, the babies can taste and they can smell. Their taste buds are fully formed. Uh, the flavors of the food the mother eats are present in the amniotic fluid. And the child's always swallowing the amniotic fluid, and so the child tastes what mom is tasting, and from birth, the children then show a preference for those flavors that the mother was eating while pregnant, okay? And uh, there was uh, one study on this, it was kind of interesting. This was over in Europe where um, they, they flavor uh, things with um, anise. It's a kind of spice. We don't use it a whole lot over here for good reason, I think. But uh, it's kind of a licorice sort of flavor. All right, and so they gave mothers some anise-flavored drinks during pregnancy, one group, and they gave another group of mothers uh, drinks without any anise in it. And after the children were born, of course, those children whose mothers drank the anise-flavored drinks, they showed a preference for anise-flavored drinks. The babies who were born of mothers without anise-flavored drinks, when they were given anise-flavored drinks, they made a face like, yuck, okay? So the, the, the point is simply this. You know, scientists long believed, they assumed wrongly, that uh, babies are just sort of blank slates, right? They're just empty vessels that have to be filled with all kinds of stuff, and learning begins at birth, that sort of thing. Um, but that's not the case. Uh, you know, we're learning more and more that these, even before birth, these are uh, thinking, learning human beings who are capable of a lot more than we give them credit for, what we've given them credit for historically anyway. Now, when we consider Jesus, uh, throughout the Gospels, we're used to seeing him uh, fully grown, right, and accomplishing great things. But what does he accomplish before birth? What does he accomplish in the womb? What does Jesus do in utero, in other words? And so Roman numeral number one in your outline he brings people together. Now, now that's obvious in the gospel reading for today. Uh, the angel Gabriel has announced to the Virgin Mary that she will be the mother of the Lord. And the Gab Gabriel also announced that your cousin Elizabeth is already in the sixth month. You know, she's an aged woman. She was, not a, she was barren, but now she's expecting. And so Mary goes to the hill country of Judea to check it out. So Jesus is bringing these two people together from, from quite a, a, some distance. He's bringing them together. And point A, this foreshadows the church. It foreshadows you and me. Uh, I cite Matthew 18 there. Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, 
in my presence, there I am. And in John 10, uh, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. You see, we're part of a flock, and, and this is the theme, or one of the major themes of the New Testament, and the old as well, that we're not just individuals for Jesus, we're part of a flock, we're part of a community. You know, our Father who art, not my Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, not give me my daily bread. This is how we're taught to think. And then point B, this foreshadows his reconciliation work as well. It foreshadows his work of reconciliation. I cite Luke 23. This is where, uh, this is during the trial of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and then Pilate learns that Jesus is a Galilean. And so he says, oh, I'm going to send him to Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas rules Galilee. And so he sends him to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas interviews him and really kind of mocks him and then sends him back to Pilate. So Luke writes that these two men were at odds with one another prior and that this caused them to come together as friends. They were friendly after this. You see, even in a hostile environment, Jesus reconciles people together. In Matthew chapter five, I cite as well, uh, Jesus says, if, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, first, you know, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. This is Jesus, you see, this is how he works. And St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. His forgiveness of us motivates our forgiveness of those around us. I couldn't help but to think of Genesis 2 where, where God looks at Adam and he says it's not good for man to be alone. We're social creatures. We are made for fellowship with one another. Now, by contrast, sin divides us. It separates us. It, it separates people relationally, and in some cases, it separates them geographically as well. Our indifference causes distance between us, but Christ overcomes that distance. His forgiveness overcomes the animosity that we create. So this is all foreshadowed in, in what he's doing here, bringing people together. Roman numeral two, he, meaning Jesus in the womb, he instills joy. And in verses 41 and 44, uh, we read of John leaping for joy in his mother's womb. Now this, this leaping has a spiritual meaning. Because you remember, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. There's seven fruits listed. Joy is number two. And, and here's my point. Earlier in Luke 1, when Gabriel the angel appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, to, to announce the coming birth of John, Gabriel says this, and he, meaning John, will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, you see. And so he's filled with the Spirit. He knows what joy is. 
He knows what the approach of the Lord is. He's able to sense that and respond. And all of this, point A, it foreshadows the message of the angels at Christmas. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For to you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And point B, this foreshadows really the entire ministry of John the Baptist. He's always responding to Jesus, and he'll point him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's interesting. In the third chapter of John's Gospel, we read that Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than John and his disciples. And John's disciples are troubled, and they come to him, and they tell him that. And, and John says this. He says, look. He says, I'm not the bridegroom. Okay, He, Jesus, is the bridegroom. The church, of course, his followers are the bride of Christ. But he says, I'm not the bridegroom. He says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom, and I stand near him, and I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So this is the ministry of John, is to respond to Jesus, to point all of us to him, not to himself, but to Jesus. And then Roman numeral three, we see Jesus exalting the humble and humbling the exalted. He's, he's doing this already in the womb. By, by his conception in the womb of the virgin, he's exalting this maiden of low estate. And that's in a contrast quite a contrast to our nature. We routinely exalt ourselves. And, and we, we secretly rejoice when one of our peers stumbles, and we become jealous when our peers succeed. That's our sinful nature at work. And we're quick to throw others under the bus in order to make ourselves look better. We long to be the first and the best and the brightest. And then Jesus comes and ruins it all. Jesus shames us by his coming, his presence. While we seek the highest place, Jesus is busy seeking the lowest place, the place of the one who is the servant of all, the one who seeks the cross. So point B, he reverses what we do. We exalt ourselves, he exalts the lowly. Number one, the lowly or the humble get what they don't deserve. That's exaltation. The lowly, the humble, are those who know how much they need the Savior. They know how sinful they are. They understand they need deliverance. There's no other way. And number two, the proud get what they do deserve which is shame and humiliation, which hopefully will work repentance in their hearts so that they become lowly and admit their need for Christ. And point C, he has filled the hungry with good things. And I, I like the past tense Mary uses throughout her song. Uh, this is already done. He has filled the hungry with good things. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for justice, for peace, it's already here in the person of the Savior. Number one, this foreshadows Jesus as the bread of life. 
He's the bread of life. I was in, in, up in Indianapolis the other day, and uh, I saw a billboard for Sunbeam Bread, and there's a little girl with her hands folded praying, and there are the words, not by bread alone, Sunbeam Bread. And I thought, how wonderful of bread makers to acknowledge the Savior in that way. It's true, Jesus fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. It's true, he fed the 4,000. And yet, the greatest gift he has to offer is himself for the life of the world, and that he does. And number two, this foreshadows the Lord's Supper as well. As Jesus said, this is my body. The same body given at the cross is present in the meal by the power of his word. This is my blood of the New Testament shed for the remission of sins. The same blood shed at the cross, present in the meal, in a way we can't understand or explain, but we know by the power of his word that it's so. Now, as I said at the outset, we're accustomed to seeing Jesus fully grown, you know, casting out demons, healing the sick, teaching and preaching, living in our place as our substitute, the life that we can never live, a life of perfect obedience to the Father as our substitute. And then as our substitute on the cross, dying for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This is how we see Jesus throughout the Gospels. But today, we learn just a little bit about what he is capable of doing even in utero. And my friends, if he can do all these things in the womb, is it any wonder at all what he will accomplish fully grown? In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, amen.